You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, as my wonderful wife just mentioned, you are listening to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And this is a bonus episode. This is something we haven't really done before. We've done special topic episodes a couple of times in Vernacular, but we haven't done a bonus episode like this where we just have sort of a lighthearted discussion on one topic. So That we release at the same time as another episode. Right. But that's exactly what we're doing today. Yeah. Normally we make you wait and right. wait. Probably longer than you wish you had to. I'm sure you wish you had a daily vernacular podcast episode. I know. And I'm sure you were so excited phone. when you saw that two episodes downloaded at the same time. What? What is happening? Two vernacular episodes. So this is a bonus episode. And in it, we are talking to contributor Ishan Nath about what to be on the lookout for in fall sports coming up. We talk about baseball and football and basketball. So if you're a fan of any of those sports or if you're not a fan of any of those sports and you're at all curious about what's going to be in this bonus episode, stick around and let us know if you like it. Yes, I learned a lot on this episode because that is why I did not speak very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say it because everyone's going to notice. So You'll I'm hear Sally well just... at the very beginning and I believe at the very end. <laughs> Maybe laughing in between because <laughs> the repartee between Zach and Ishan is great. Well, I don't know if I can guarantee that, but I can guarantee that we tried. So <laughs> enjoy this, your very first bonus episode, and maybe your last bonus episode <laughs> of the Nightclub Podcast. All right, welcome back to Vernacular. We're here with our contributor, Ishan Nath, who has not joined us on this season of Vernacular Podcast for a very good reason. He's been uh, making himself very busy pursuing his PhD while doing research in India. Ishan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Uh, Both to American Soil and to the show, that is. Welcome (laughs) back. Uh, How was India, first of all? Uh, It was great. My extended family lives there, so it was really great to see them. Uh, I got to work with some really great University of Chicago researchers who were there doing important work on development, climate change, energy sort of issues. Uh, So I helped with their projects and tried to look for my own work, which is still in progress to TBD, what exactly my own research and my own dissertation is going to be about. Well, that sounds like a good start. It does. So for now, TBD, hopefully uh, soon ABD. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I I think I sort of am. ABD is all but dissertation, right? right? So have you finished, you finished all coursework, all comps, all that stuff? Yeah. I don't have any requirements other than producing some research. Just, just have to add to the stock of human knowledge, but other than that, not much. (laughs) Something original, something brilliant. (laughs) Something that no one, no human has ever done before, ever. (laughs) I mean, we make it sound like that. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds daunting. I just want to stay at home with my guinea pigs. (laughs) So we know that the last time, or at least one of the past times you've been to India, you had dengue fever. How did you fare this time? So I made plans to le- – I literally downloaded the weekly caseload data from the government website and saw that it usually spikes in the middle of August. And so I booked my ticket home for August 12th. Because <laughs> um, Julia – my wife Julia is a medical student uh, and she literally had a question on a test last year that was like, if you have a patient who's had dengue before and they're going – on a business trip to a country with dengue, like what should you tell them? And the correct multiple choice answer was don't let them go during Whoa. gay season, uh, which was extremely pertinent to our family. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. She was really like, Ishan. Yeah, I mean, so, dengue fever, is, that's a big deal. You don't mess around with that. 
Yeah. So the first time you get it, it's it's bad. Obviously, it's bad. I was in the hospital for like ten days. But the second time you get it, it's a lot worse because basically there's like four strains, and my rudimentary understanding of the science is that your body thinks it's immune. So it is immune to the strain you had before, but if you get one of the other three, then your body thinks it, it's immune, but it's actually not. So your mm. immune system just goes haywire and it's like just like a lot of internal bleeding and it's like a pretty non-trivial oh. fatality rate. Wow. So, so like so it activates the immune system to combat the known entity. Yeah, and the immune system I mean, I don't exactly know what happens, but it sounded to me like the immune system just well, gets frustrated. Well, why, why, why don't you just go get Julia and bring her? Well, I'm so, so glad that you made it back to India yes, in one and piece you did not with that dengue, dengue fever. fever again. And, See, uh, got... actually, so the outbreak started early this year, and a lot of people in my family got dengue or oh. other mosquito-transmitted diseases like right after I left. Oh, so, no. Wow. And uh, it's like – it's been – so last year they had the worst outbreak ever and this year's pace is well ahead of last year's. So it's like a disease that's on the rise, unfortunately. Um, is this triggered by climate change? Unclear. There's some research that suggests it does, but there's like conflicting effects of heat and like different precipitation patterns sure. on mosquito life cycles. So yeah. it's like pretty complicated. I think it's more likely – my like vague understanding of the evidence on this is that it's more likely for climate to affect dengue than malaria because like the dengue virus can survive hotter temperatures or something like the malaria. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to say something that's probably not true and then it's going to go on the internet if I try to talk about science. <laughs> uh, so I guess I'll just say, I don't know, but the good news is that there's a vaccine that's been improved. Uh, so the vaccine's like, fairly effective and so it should be pretty impactful unfortunately only five countries have approved it so far and india is not one of them which uh is a bit of bureaucracy that i found pretty frustrating wow yeah no kidding um so yeah but that's enough about that i'm healthy it's it's good i'm i'm happy to be home i'm ready to talk about sports all right well let's do it so sports yeah you're our guy who we bring on to talk about economics and sports your vocation and your avocation respectively so uh, I prepared a list of questions here. We're going to use to talk about three different sports, basketball, baseball, and football. And we're sort of at, a crucial, at crucial junctures in all of them because we're gearing up for the basketball and football seasons, and we're preparing to begin the baseball postseason going to the playoffs and eventually the World Series. So we're going to break these down uh, question by question. My first question for you, we're going to start with basketball, the one that's in the most distant future. The, the season won't begin for another couple months here. But the big uh, off-season acquisition, the big storyline, Kevin Durant going from the Oklahoma City Thunder to the Golden State Warriors. What's the impact here? Does this make the Warriors a better contender for the NBA 16-17 season? Uh, so, no offense, that's not a great question. Because uh, <laughs> it has such an obvious answer? Yeah. I mean, love so, your honesty, Sean. <laughs> I, I also love the honesty. But counterpoint to this, so there are some people who are saying the – chemistry in the locker room could be in question yeah kd and steph and clay and igadala have worked well previously but who's to say that's going to continue right i mean we've seen situations before where there are too many egos on the team to make it work right guys want to set their own records and they don't want to, have to share the ball with with other guys who could eclipse those records or eclipse their publicity playing time whatever uh, so that's that's one argument. The other argument is, I mean, there's sort of a ceiling here for a number of really good players. 
you can have because there's only so much time in a basketball game and only one person can have the ball at a time. So I think that your theory that you've outlined of why just throwing together big names on a team doesn't always work is absolutely true. And we've definitely seen teams with a lot of big names that don't win at all or sometimes aren't even good. Like the 2004 Lakers with like an older Gary Payton and Carl Malone and Kobe and Shaq ended up being like actually not very good. And I think right. they got swept in the playoffs by the Spurs. Yep. Uh, so that's definitely true. But basically none of those things apply here because the – level of selflessness to ego ratio for all of these players is extremely high. And uh, all of these guys are game, or have offensive games who make all the guys around them way better, and they don't need the ball to be successful. So the key thing is that all the Warrior superstars are great shooters. And if you're a great shooter, you don't need the ball to make an impact on the game because you're making guys chase you around all over the perimeter or far away from the basket and helping other guys get open. So when Steph's running around and KD's got the ball, Steph's helping KD score just by being on the court. So it's not like the Wade-LeBron dynamic when they got together on the Heat because they were both guys who were used to having the ball. Curry and Durant are fine playing off the ball. Durant played off the ball a lot of their clutch possessions in Oklahoma City when Westbrook was doing his thing with the ball. Uh, so I think there's going to be no there's no chemistry issues when you put that much great shooting on the court. It just can't not work. They're I think they're the most overwhelming favorite in the history of professional sports. I think it's almost impossible to imagine them staying healthy and not winning championship. Uh, in the sense that in basketball. The best team almost always wins. The team that's favored almost always wins. So last year in the finals, it was like a pretty big upset by most advanced metrics. Right. But a lot of a lot of weird stuff happened, right? Like Curry post injury never really played at yep. his pre injury level. And then Iguodala was like hobbling around like you know, like a elderly man right. late in the series. <laughs> yeah. And uh I was trying to say that politely. This is going on the internet. <laughs> uh, and obviously Bogut was out and Harrison Barnes like forgot how to play basketball. Had right. some sort of out-of-body experience. So a lot of weird <laughs> stuff happened. And even then the Cavaliers won by one possession in the last game. Uh, and so that, you know, it takes a it lot of It gives you an idea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was without a top three player in the NBA who's now on their team. Okay. So follow-up um, question then. If, if what you're saying is true, that they're the most overwhelming favorite in modern sports, uh, is this good or bad for the sport? Okay, so let me finish why they're the most oh, – the other reason why they're the most overwhelming favorite, there might be some other teams that have been comparable in talent, but in baseball and football, the favorites are, for a given disparity in team quality, are much less overwhelming of favorites. So like a baseball team that's 20 games better than another baseball team in the regular season is probably like a 58-42 favorite in a playoff series, but a basketball team that's 20 games better is like a – 95-5 favorite right, playoff series. Sure. Uh, so there's a big sport thing going on there too. And like in football, it's a one-game playoff. So it's obviously... There's always happens. a chance for randomness, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's very little randomness in the seven-game series in the NBA is what I'm saying. Um, so it's not necessarily saying they're the best team in the history of sports, just the biggest favorite. just want to be clear. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think that all of this superstar, I don't know. I guess I'm divided about whether it's good or bad for the sport. I maybe should have thought of an answer before the podcast. 
Well, I mean, in fairness to you, and just so our listeners know, I didn't give Ishan this question before we started the podcast. So no, 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 it's full. Um, so I think it's bad for the sport, but I share, I, I sympathize, and uh, generally support Durant's decision in the sense that I sort of feel like the only defense that we have against superstars. There's two defenses that the NBA has against superstars teaming up like this and making a team that's unfairly good. The first one is the salary cap. And due to the new television deal that the NBA has, there's a massive expansion in the salary cap from um, last season to this coming season of like $23 million per team or something. And so basically all the teams had max salary space and so Durant could go wherever he wanted, whereas usually a team like the Warriors that already has a lot of superstars wouldn't have that much cap space. Right. And the other thing is well, the Steph's Warriors... Well, on a really advantageous contract, yeah, too. Yeah, they have Curry for, like, less than half of his max because he had a lot of ankle injuries early right. in his career when he was signing this deal. Um, so there's some weird stuff going on there. But then the other defense that pro sports have against superstars teaming up like this is there's, like, social pressure against it. Like... Fans don't like it, and I feel like that defense has just been totally eliminated by the LeBron era. Like, he went to the Heat, and they did all this celebrating, and everyone was mad at him. And then gradually, like, people started to like him again, and he was able to sort of – I mean, this is my cynical perspective, but I feel like he was sort of able to mask his further superstar chasing by this I'm coming home business by going back to Cleveland. When Someone's not a LeBron fan. (laughs) I just well no I mean it, it was pretty obvious that the Miami superstars were just too old for him and he needed some younger superstars and it's like the only team that was able to like bring them together was the Cavs like if the Knicks had been able to get Love and Kyrie he would have gotten the Knicks uh, at least that's my opinion so I feel like and now LeBron's like this fan favorite and so I feel like Durant sees that and he's like if LeBron's gonna chase superstars all over and like get credit for all of these titles and become a fan favorite then like. There's literally no reason for me not to do that yeah. because obviously that's like become socially acceptable now. So I feel like it's bad that it's socially acceptable, but conditional on it being socially acceptable, it makes sense for superstars to respond to those incentives. So this is basically the theory of how LeBron ruined the NBA. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Moving on. Uh, next is baseball. Let's talk about Tim Tebow. So he's made news in the past couple of days because he wants to play Major League Baseball. And yesterday he ha- uh, hosted a private workout for around 23 Major League teams who all sent scouts to see what he uh, had in the tank. So this has garnered a lot of attention around the baseball world. Some people are offended that Tebow at 29 years old thinks he can just waltz onto a pro baseball diamond and still play. Other people think it's cool that he's trying it um, and shows respect for the game because he still has that passion. What are your thoughts, Ishan? What are the chances uh, Tim Tebow ever plays in a major league game? So I like Tim Tebow. He seems like a great guy. He cares about the world. I keep reading about all these like missionary trips he goes on. Hopefully he's helping people. Uh, seems like a decent enough ESPN commentator. I think it's great that he's trying to play Major League Baseball or professional baseball of some type. Uh, I don't begrudge anyone the chance to chase any dreams of theirs. Uh, So I don't really have a strong opinion on his baseball abilities from having watched 35 seconds of highlights on SportsCenter. Uh, I saw that he was a 490 hitter when he was a junior in high school, which was the last time he played. 
seems promising. I saw that he hit a couple balls, like 450 feet. Uh, the scouts think he might be able to hang as a minor leaguer, so, you know, maybe he'll go try to learn how to get better at the things he's not very good at. Obviously, there's a lot of baseball things he must not be able to do at all, not having played for a decade. But he had a couple tools. They said he had good power, decent speed, uh, mediocre outfield abilities, below average throwing arm, below average contact when facing live pitching. I don't know. That was the scouting report they had on SportsCenter. I'm just yep. repeating it. Yeah, I saw the same exact segment. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it seems incredibly unlikely that he'll ever play in the major leagues, but it's cool for him to try. Well, one thing that I think is strange is that he never tried to play football at a different position. Uh, and, like, it's his life. He can do whatever he wants. I don't want to, like, criticize his choices. To me, he's but... built like a tight end, like Gronk. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like tight end or fullback or yeah. some sort of, like, gimmicky play wildcat quarterback. Like, I feel like it's not clear to me that a team would want to save a spot on their 53-man roster for, like, a, a specialist like player that. like yeah. that. But, like... It seems strange to me that he didn't try to do that. I feel like he'd be a solid fullback or tight end. I mean, and I really see him as uh, another Gronk or Travis Kelsey. Um, yeah, and I've seen some NFL scouts say they'd at least like give him a tryout. I'm not saying it would have worked, but it's odd to me that he didn't at least try to play a different position in his main sport. Right, yeah, it is kind of strange. I totally agree with that. Uh, but if we're talking percentage chances here, what's the chance he ever sees a major league diamond? Oof. I can see a bad team. They're talking about the Braves on SportsCenter. I yeah. can see a bad team in SEC country calling him up in September, but like when they have their 40-man rosters instead of 25-man rosters to give the minor leaguers a chance to play. I can see if he has like even a borderline acceptable minor league season, some bad team calling him up to sell some tickets. Yeah, I, that, that's exactly how I see this going too. I think they'll sign him to a cheap minor league contract. Let him play on there, play it on there, just to like give young guys a chance to play with a guy who's got a good attitude and has a positive work ethic, and yeah. then and then call him up in the end of a season just to sell some tickets. I mean, I think if he can hit like two thirty, two forty, play like a little bit below average outfield, hit hit above average power. Yeah, hit like fifteen homers or yeah. something. If he can be like a below average, but like not totally atrocious minor league baseball player, then I think he'll at least see a few games in the major leagues yeah i think percentage chance that he sticks on a major league roster for a full season is virtually nil i I would say i would say zero yeah i I think you're exactly right on that okay well let's let's talk about above average performers on baseball teams here's your third question of the night uh who's the best uh young phenom in baseball right now we've got a lot of names coming out of this season especially uh one of my personal favorites nolan arenado who doesn't get a ton of attention but this year he's hitting a ton of home runs hitting for really good power he's a perennial gold glover always really good defensively Uh, obviously mike trout the guy uh whose name is always tossed about as the best player in baseball right now bryce harper not having a good year but um uh, coming off a major uh superstar season last year and he's shown some signs of life uh this month uh and then we got newcomers uh chris bryant relative newcomer he's in his second season now uh, doing amazing stuff for the Cubs. I'm a big Chris Bryant fan. Uh, or a guy like Gary Sanchez has only been in the majors for, I think, two, two and a half weeks now, but was the fastest major leaguer in history to hit 11 home runs. So, uh, And there are other guys I haven't named, but who's your pick? Uh, Mike Trout is clearly the best player in baseball. He's been the best player in baseball for a while. He's a 
spectacular center fielder, great range, great arm. He's got everything. He gets on base. He takes his walks. He hits for average. He hits for power. He's a great base runner. He's really fast. He's a great teammate. He's just a perfect baseball specimen. I think Mike Trout's one of the best players in the history of the game already, even though he's in his early 20s still. I'm not sure exactly how old he is, but he's been around for like four or five seasons. Uh, yeah, that he's sounds right. still less than 25 years old. Right. Um, but I'd love to talk about Chris Bryant, obviously my Chicago guy. Uh, Bryant, he's in his second season. He could become the first player. Right now, Vegas has him at 7-3 to three odds to win the MVP, which is, I think, basically implies like a 35% chance of him winning. But when he's basically in a two-way race with his teammate, Anthony Rizzo, right? Although, so I think Daniel Murphy's going to get some first okay, yeah, sure. from the Nationals. Um, yeah, I think 7-3 to three is not even – that seems – not even good enough odds. Like, I think he's kind of running away with it at this point. Uh, yeah, I think so you're right. Bryant is, he's hitting now 305 with a 402 on base percentage. I'm not even looking at these stats. I just know this because I love him so much. Uh, so he's like 12th in the National League in batting average, fourth in on base percentage, second in slugging percentage. He's now leading the National League in home runs after a home run that I just saw him hit on TV while doing this podcast with 36 homers. Uh, he's scored the most runs in the National League. He's third in runs batted in. Uh, and he plays above average defense at four positions. He's primarily a third baseman, but he started like 25 games in left and right field and like five or six games at first base for the Cubs this year. And he even played a couple games in center field and one game in shortstop. So he's played six positions while – and six positions – sort of consistently switching between at least four of them while yeah, that's that's and that's almost unheard of in the modern era for a guy who's not like an everyday utility player who hits below 250 and is just a placeholder absolutely and yeah I, for a guy to lead the league in home runs while playing four positions at above average defense at every position so there's a stat called defensive run saved which is a combination of like stat tracking where the ball was hit and also they use video to look at like which defensive plays i don't know. there's a lot of like data that goes into but it's, the it's a measure of your value stats. as a defensive player yeah compared to the average defender and bryant has a positive defensive run saved which means above average at all four of those positions uh while leading the national league in home runs and getting on base a lot and he's a great base runner he grades above average in all the base running stats so he's basically uh, totally, in terms of versatility and talent at the plate, it's really hard to think of anybody in the history of baseball who's done what he's doing. And he's only 24 years old. This is his second season. And if he does win the MVP, which right now I have to think is very likely, uh, especially because the Cubs have the best record in the major leagues, uh, if he does win the MVP in the last four years, he will have won College Player of the Year in 2013, Minor League Player of the Year for all the minor leagues, for all the levels of the minor leagues, for all the teams in 2014, Rookie of the Year in the Major Leagues in 2015, and MVP in 2016 in four straight years. So he'll be the first player ever to win all four of those awards, and they'll be in four straight years. So he's basically been the best player at his level of baseball. Everywhere he's gone. Yeah. Also... He's really down to earth. He and Anthony Rizzo, the Cubs' first baseman, who's also probably going to finish in the top three. They're like great teammates, great leaders, 
really personable, love chatting with the fans. It's really, really fun to watch baseball on the north side of Chicago right now. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm, I'm all aboard the Cubs bandwagon uh, now that my Phillies are, well, they, we knew from the beginning of the season that this was a rebuilding year, so I, kn- I knew they didn't have a chance, but uh, it's been really fun watching the Cubs play. I agree with your assessment of Bryant. I'm really interested in Gary Sanchez, but I think this the sample size is way too small for us to say anything definitive about what he's done in the majors so far. So... We'll just uh, stay tuned to that MVP race. Okay, so moving on now to football, uh, I'll ask sort of a combined question here about college and NFL levels. Uh, what are some teams that we need to be watching in college football this year? And uh, in the NFL, who do you think is going to the Super Bowl? So I'm going to start answering that question by complaining about college football preseason prognostications. Okay. And then I Let's may or may not participate in the prognosticating. We'll see. Okay. Uh, <laughs> So I think there's a couple things that annoy me about it. Number one is you just see all these people on TV who are supposed to know everything about all the teams, mostly just picking teams that are famous and teams that won last year. And the second thing that annoys me about it is that there's this weird feedback cycle where when teams have an easier schedule, people are like projecting that they'll do better because they're playing fewer hard teams. And so they rank them higher out of this projection, not actually thinking they're better. But then, like, the preseason rankings have an impact on perception throughout the whole season. Sure, And so, like, weirdly ends up rewarding teams that don't have an easier strength. So, yeah. And so, and there's all this, I think this five conferences and four playoff participants is just a total mess when the conferences don't have any standardization of how they play. So the Pac-12 has nine conference games and a conference championship game. But... None of the other conferences do. The Big, the Big 12 is the only one that has nine conference games, but they don't have a conference championship game. And the SEC, ACC, and Big 10 all have eight conference games. And some teams schedule more harder out-of-conference games. So you've got some teams super biased, but like Stanford is going to play nine conference games, and they have Notre Dame and Kansas State, who are like real power Actual conference opponents, teams yeah. that are good. And then you have yeah, Alabama exactly. playing like, you know, small tech state schools right. that no one's heard of. They have like Kent State, Louisiana Tech, and like another FCS school on their schedule. So, right. And they only have eight conference games. So they are playing USC out of conference. But basically they have nine real games on their schedule and Stanford has 11. Right. And so there's like at the end of the season, you're comparing all these teams that have played 12 games to these other teams that have played 10 games. And then you're like, oh, well, this team that played 12 games lost twice, so obviously they're behind this one-loss team. Everyone keeps saying that the college football playoff strength of schedule matters and, like, it's really important now. And, like, I don't think that's totally not true. Like, conditional on the number of losses, strength of schedule seems to matter. Like, if you both lost one game. But the overriding priority in rankings is, like, very clearly still how many games did you lose. And when some teams are playing, like, a quarter fewer games than other teams that seems very silly to me so yeah so like this season everybody in these talking head sports journalist worlds is saying that the Pac-12 is going to miss the college football playoff because it's very important to say why people think they're going to miss the playoff it's because they play nine conference games and a conference championship game and there's like a lot of depth in the Pac-12 so there's not necessarily like the teams at the top aren't necessarily better than other conferences but the teams at the bottom are pretty good right and so all these prognosticators are like oh well no one can get through a pac-12 schedule without losing twice so they're going to miss the playoff but they're not saying 
that Lemoine, in fact, 12 is going to be good enough to be in the playoff. They're just predicting they're that they'll miss it. They're saying they're going to have two losses, the and therefore... Yeah, which is sort of like weirdly admitting that this system is like deeply flawed. Yeah. If they're like reasoning for why they won't make it is because of the schedule. Uh, so that's deeply annoying to me. That being said, uh, I think that in the – so I can analyze the Pac-12 the best because obviously that's the conference I watch the most. Right. Um, I think in the Pac-12, every year we hear everyone say that Washington or UCLA or USC are going to be the toughest games on Stanford's schedule. And like one or two of these schools are always hyped. This year it's all three of them. To be fair, Washington isn't usually hyped. That's kind of new this year. But I did see uh, them picked as uh, ESPN's breakout team of the year. Yeah, this year they're being hyped. But I'm saying like UCLA and USC seem to be hyped. Yeah, every they're perennially year. hyped, sure, yeah. And it's just all, Oregon's just always the toughest game on our schedule. So I still feel like it's always going to be Oregon uh, until proven otherwise. So the Pac-12 has been around for six seasons now. And Stanford and Oregon won all six conference championships, three each. And really, like, they've always been clearly the two best teams in the conference. Yeah. And so it seems strange to me to not keep. So at the beginning, I complained that people just picked teams who won last year, and now I'm doing that. So it's just hard to make predictions. <laughs> yeah, fair uh, enough. I think what's going to be really fun to watch and is always fun to watch is all these Heisman discussions, which are sort of annoying because so much of it is based on perception. But, uh, this year, there's just a lot of returners who were contenders last year, which I think is unusual. So, like, Christian McCaffrey, who came in second last year in the worst voting decision probably in the history of sports, uh, is viewed by many people as a favorite. But, like, Deshaun Watson easily could have won last year from Clemson, too. And he's playing for a team that's very likely to be a national championship contender. And uh, Leonard Fournette is, like, one of the best running backs we've had in college football for a while from LSU. Dalvin Cook from Florida State is really good. There's all these other quarterbacks who play for these spread offenses that one of their teams gets hot and doesn't lose a lot of games. They could easily be in the Heisman voting. There's a, so there's a lot of great individual players coming back in college football this year. I think usually it's a little bit – I think there's more star power at the beginning of the season than we're used to. Is that it on college football? Uh, yeah, I don't want to pick a national champion or anything because I'm just going to pick Stanford. That's totally fine. <laughs> Um, you could pick Sanford, though. I mean, people are projecting, projecting them to do pretty well. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, like, a little nervous about it because uh, they're replacing three-fifths of their offensive line, which is usually, like, the most important yeah, part of their that's team. that's a harbinger of Dean when you're rebuilding your offensive line. Yeah, so they're, they're also going to have a new quarterback. I, their quarterbacks are incredibly highly recruited and have been in the system for a while learning the playbook and stuff. So I'm actually more worried about the offensive line than the quarterbacks. But the biggest thing is they play five ranked teams on the road. And so basically... It's a tough schedule. Yeah, all of their... Not only is it a tough schedule, but all of their tough games are on the road and except USC. And all of their like less tough games are at home. So it seems difficult to imagine them going like four and one or five and zero oh in those five sure. road games. So yeah, I think they have a good chance to win the Pac-12. I I don't know if they can finish with one loss, which is uh, what the powers that be have deemed to be the projected record. Yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. we'll see. Okay, so NFL uh, Super Bowl. NFL. I'm gonna say the Packers. I think Aaron Rodgers is still the best player in the NFL. 
and his receivers are back and healthy, if they can block for him at all and play defense at all, I just always think the Packers are going to be good. They've had some really backbreaking, unlucky, difficult losses in the playoffs in recent years. Uh, yeah, Seahawks and Packers, I guess, are the teams that stick out in my mind. Yeah, sounds good. I, I think uh, the Packers are going to go all the way this year. But speaking of backbreaking, uh, unlucky losses, how about Tony Romo going down in that preseason game? Oof, what a crushing. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Pretty sad. Yeah, I don't know if that. I don't know if that guy's ever really going to be able to make a comeback. He's 36 years old. That's yeah, getting up there for NFL starter. Wow, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Did you see Teddy Teddy Bridgewater? Oh my gosh! Yeah. So bad. Such a freak accident too. It was a non-contact injury. I mean, he just stepped back in the pocket, planted his Ugh. foot, and then went down. It's crazy. I don't know how oh, in the world that happens, but it's really sad. Fortunately, he's a he's a young player with a lot of talent, and I think he'll be able to come back and make a full recovery from it. But it's a bummer to miss the playing time for sure. And his team was relying on him to do some really good work this year. I am excited. The circumstances that brought it about are horrible, but I am excited to watch Dak Prescott get a chance to. Play I am as well. That guy has been Dallas. lighting up the preseason, and uh, I think obviously it's against vanilla secondaries in the preseason, and you know you're not facing the pressure that you actually are, and the defensive lines he was facing in those games weren't great but if he can do even 70 percent of what he did in the preseason he's going to be putting together a really good rookie campaign yeah i loved watching him at mississippi state i felt like the rest of the mississippi state team did not necessarily have as much talent as some of the teams they were playing competitively with and beating and i felt like that was really carrying them yeah he was a big part of the reason yeah totally agree so it will be fun to watch that storyline, as unfortunate and sad as it is for Tony Romo. We'll get to see uh, Dak Prescott in action this fall. Yeah. Well, Ishan, uh, we better wrap it up here. I think our time is up. Thanks so much for coming on and talking to us about uh, fall sports, giving us a primer on what to look for in fall sports. Uh, best of luck to your Chicago teams as we go into uh, the baseball postseason and then the uh, football seasons. And best of luck to the Cardinals as well. Can't forget Stanford there. Thanks. Uh and uh, go Eagles. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All the way. Super Bowl. <laughs> NFC champions. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks so much, Ishan. Thanks, Ishan. All right. We are back to wrap this up and remind you to contact us. You can email us at Vernacular. I mean, you can email us at... <laughs> <laughs> at- vernacularpodcast.com <laughs> at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com you can also reach out on Twitter at vernacularpod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast you can wear our merchandise you definitely should and you can vernacularpodcast.com and if you click on the merch button you will see the designs that we created with our partner represent and then you can click the link and buy them and if you use offer code listen up all caps one word then you can get 15% off of your purchase and our website is just a great resource for looking at past episodes. You can go to our blog. You can listen to season one of Vernacular Podcast, which All is over a year and a half ago. All the way back to the beginning. Yeah. You can a check out our contributor page and learn more about our team not. who does this with us. Yes. All right. I think that about covers it for yes. Vernacular. So stay tuned for the next episode. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. You know that. Better than ever. 
when I'm by your side. 